It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Dweezil Zappa. He's performing Hot Rats Live, plus other hot stuff, 1969 at Brooklyn Bowl, Las Vegas, this Thursday, February 20th at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to brooklynbowl.com forward slash las-vegas. And for everything about Dweezil, go to dweezilzappa.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at dweezilzappa, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. And Dweezil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let's start out with a question about your dad, Frank Zappa. What would you say is one of his defining musical characteristics? The fact that his music from song to song, from album to album, is so drastically different and and not part of some type of a template or retraceable step process. You know, each song is so different from the next that it it's it's remarkable. It's as if he had a whole other bag of, of tones that other people didn't have. Where do you think that came from? In other words, was he, in essence, self-created, or did he have influences from other musicians along the way? Well, I think that his influences had nothing to do with the rock and roll era, so that's why his music really became something that when mixed with the rock and roll stuff was taking so many different directions and, and combining different styles. So uh, around 11 years old, he discovered an album by a composer named Edgar Varese. And he saw it in a record store because the guy had a hairdo that he, he thought of as a mad scientist hairdo. He said, Oh, let the mad scientist make a record. I'm going to have to check this out. <laughs> and so when he when he got this record that he paid for, he brought it home, and his family, everybody hated the sound of it because it had things in it that were non-instruments being used as instruments, like air raid sirens and, and different things. Um, and so my dad was only allowed to listen to that record while his mom was vacuuming. <laughs> so he had to have the, the sound of the vacuum in the background. But um, in any case, at 11 years old, he's found this music that a lot of people didn't understand at the time, but he really loved it. And at that point, he, he knew that he wanted to be a composer and he went to the library and he taught himself how to properly write music and orchestrate and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, prior to all of that, he had been writing music on paper without knowing anything about the rules of writing music. He just was a good artist and he, he liked the way it looked. But when he really figured out how it was all put together, you know, he didn't have anybody telling him what you could and could not do. So there were no boundaries. And that's that's why his music sounds the way it is. There, there were never any boundaries. You could use anything with anything. And you grew up in that atmosphere, and it obviously had an impact on you, not only in terms of pursuing a career as a musician, but also in terms of 
again, talking about his music and getting his music out to another audience or future audiences as well. At what age did you decide that you wanted to do that? Well, when I decided that I wanted to do this musical project, it was in response really to seeing that people were writing things about my dad um, that were just more misinformation. Again, he was sort of being relegated to the novelty act drawer. And so it was a not long after he had passed away. Uh, and I, um, I decided that I wanted to do something, at least give it a try once to reintroduce or reeducate an audience. Uh, and that turned out to be 14 years ago. And I've been doing it annually since. Um, I have played many of his songs, uh, and many of his most difficult compositions. So in that process, I've gone through my own version of, of musical university and have learned many more skills, um, not only for playing guitar, but for composing and, and other things that I never would have had the opportunity to, to do so. You know, it's been a worthwhile process for me on many levels, obviously for the love of the music and, and all of that, but I've I've learned so many other things that I can use in other areas. And, you know, so it, it's, a, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's been something that's uh, been rewarding. What was the biggest surprise when you decided to, in essence, Zappa play Zappa, in the sense of Hot Rats Live plus other hot stuff, 1969. Again, we mentioned it at the Brooklyn Bowl coming up this Thursday, February 20th at 7 p.m. What was the biggest surprise when you first started to put this together? Or was well, there more than one? Tour, mm-hmm. Yeah, this particular tour, it's we started uh, playing Hot Rats last year uh, where it was actually on the 50th anniversary um, and a lot of people have always responded to that album in my dad's fan base. It's a well, well-known, well-loved album. But the interesting thing about it is that it's predominantly instrumental. And so the elements that exist on the record for solo sections, for example, there are lengthy sections that are improvisational. And so when I was deciding, okay, how are we going to make this experience feel like the record, but still allow ourselves to also uh, be improvisational in the moments that are meant to be improvised. And so the, the real challenge is to create the soundscape to make it so close to the original so that you can play and the notes that you play will then be much more in context because you're using the same tones from the record. And so that is uh, a challenge in itself just to recreate the the sounds. But for certain songs, like say, um, Son of Mr. Green Jeans, you know, that has about a seven minute guitar solo on it. And what my dad played on that is so iconic and so specific to that song that I decided to learn that one note for note um, because that's just how that song goes. But 
you know, conversely, a song like Boy the Pimp has a long guitar solo in it, but I choose to play parts that exist in the solo and use those as guideposts and fill in the blanks with my own ideas playing in context to the music and also with the same sound. So then it becomes the experience of, of hearing an evolving version of something that sounds familiar, but is, you know, era specific and it's evocative of the, the you know, the right place in time. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I have another question regarding that in a second, but let's take a break. My guest, Dweezil Zappa, is performing Hot Rats Live, plus other hot stuff, 1969, at Brooklyn Bowl, Las Vegas, this Thursday, February 20th at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to brooklynbowl.com forward slash las-vegas. And for everything about Dweezil, go to dweezilzappa.com and follow him on Twitter at dweezilzappa, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You think you know Vegas? But how much do you really know about this neon city? See the dark side of the bright lights at the Ma Museum where you can explore how a tough little town transformed into a gaming metropolis with a little help from organized crime. You won't find these stories of lawbreakers and law enforcement, mob bosses and prosecutors anywhere else. The Ma Museum in downtown Las Vegas. More information at themobmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Dweezil Zappa. He's performing Hot Rats Live, plus other hot stuff, 1969 at Brooklyn Bowl, Las Vegas, this Thursday, February 20th at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to brooklynbowl.com forward slash las-vegas. And for everything about Dweezil, you can go to dweezilzappa.com and follow him on Twitter at dweezilzappa, as well as Instagram and on Facebook. Dweezil, when you were putting the album, or when you are going through the album and preparing it for live performance, it was clearly recorded at a certain point where technology was different than it is now. Were you surprised at some of the sounds that you came across even today from back when it was recorded? Well, you know, the thing is, if you do a little research, which I have, you know, inspected things about the album myself, um, it, it was one of, if not the very first albums that uh, had a stereo drum sound, you know, so you know, stereo is ubiquitous at this point, but uh, back then it was a new thing that people were being exposed to and it added depth and, and, and all of these different kinds of um, characters to, to the sound that made it, uh, you know, more realistic and more open. And so I think that's one of the things that uh, contributed to people being excited about the album is is the time and place as far as technology and and then hearing what became possible. Um, but beyond that, my dad was doing things in the studio that people weren't aware of in terms of tape speed manipulation. So he was recording instruments at different speeds, which then would give the instrument uh, a different range. Uh, so certain things were recorded on horns where they were able to play notes that weren't possible 
uh, unless they were recorded at a different speed. So he was creating new instruments in the process, you know, changing the speed of drums and recording bass guitar at different speeds and getting different textures from that. But when you hear the album, you're not really aware of that. You're just hearing a, a collage of sounds that that sound very unique and and intricately put together. Um, but uh, you know that was a use of technology for composition that um, at the time really was very ahead of its time. And and still, like if you were to go and and pick apart the the song uh, or any of the, the material on the songs and listen to track by track and see what textures were created as a result of that technology, um, it makes it that much more impressive that, you know, here's a guy in his middle 20s who is just pushing the boundaries and being so uh, innovative, uh, but that was just a natural drive for him. And this was at a time when it was analog rather than digital. Well, some of the things that um, I'm referring to, like the tape speed manipulation, you can't even do that in uh, in the digital world because you actually need the, the tape machine medium to actually get the right texture of it. Um, you know, there's things you can do to change the pitch of stuff, but right. it comes with artifacts. It, it changes, it, it, it becomes instantly more chipmunk-like than you know, with some of the subtleties of the way it was done with a tape machine. So, you know, that that's one thing that still stands as, uh, you know, if you really want to hear something do that, that kind of manipulation, it's still better done with a tape machine. Right. And, that, uh, I guess that was my point, is that even in an era when it was analog rather than digital, he was doing things that you couldn't replicate exactly even in the digital world where we tend to think of in the digital world you could replicate anything but not necessarily yeah there's only a few small things that um that remain difficult to to convincingly you know emulate in the the digital world but you know it it, it it's pretty crazy the, the the tools that exist now so for example my dad's whole career uh, he recorded virtually every show that he ever did, and uh, by the time that he had the ability to do it, he was dragging around with him a mobile recording studio, which was the back of a, a semi, and it had a bunch of recording equipment in it and tons and tons of cables that needed to be brought into every venue. And you're talking about, you know, thousands of pounds of gear and cables and uh, a lot of people that have to set that stuff up and uh you know this this thing would have to be shipped over on a on a boat to go from the US to Europe and and so it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to drag this stuff around and so my dad typically would lose a lot of money on tour but he was capturing all the concerts and then he was able to recoup the money by making it into albums and getting record sales and publishing but that world doesn't exist anymore. Now people think records are supposed to be free, even though they still cost you a lot of money to make. People are under the impression that, oh yeah, music has no real value. I should just, you know, be able to get it for free or at the very least 99 cents. Right. You know, so uh, that really 
uh, needs to change. M- music needs to be uh, revalued and, and more appreciated. And, and one of the ways that may change that is technology. Uh, in the future, in the very near future, there's uh, there's very real possibility that a lot of music, even the music that are by legacy artists as well as new artists will come out in a format that will be a much more three-dimensional sound. So we were talking about how stereo became a new thing, but there's a whole platform of multi-channel surround type of uh, sounding platforms, you know, one of them being Dolby Atmos that can give you a listening experience of things flying around your head or you hear stuff above you or below you or behind you. And if you put that in the context of music, you know, now it's like an audio movie for your ears. And that that has got to be much more valued as a delivery system than standard stereo. And so I look forward to, you know, that type of thing catching on so that, uh, that people can enjoy music on a deeper level, but that it also opens up the possibility for uh, artists to to make money doing the thing that they're spending their life doing. You know, I mean, it's like it's ridiculous for people to expect artists to give their music away for free. Yeah, that always amazed me. Did, did your dad also film a lot of his concerts as well as record them? He did not film that many of them. That was way too high of a price. So there's very limited footage out there um, of full concerts. You know, there, there are a few that have already been released. I think pretty much everything that has ever been filmed has, has been released in one way or another. But, you know, there's still, because he has such a vast catalog, there's still a lot of music that, people never would be able to see perform like a song like Billy the Mountain, for example, there's no footage of that song being performed live. And, and, uh, you know, so me and in my project, I've filmed a lot of shows that we've done. We haven't released that many things yet because it, it takes a long time for me to be able to go through everything and, and put stuff together. You know, I have one DVD that we made, back in 2008 but we have since probably filmed like I don't know 10 shows and I have a lot of um, material that I plan to put together that will include songs that really you can't find any footage of my dad playing like uh, Billy the Mountain for example so at some point I will put out a special project that that has a lot of material, uh, rare things that uh, don't exist in a visual medium. I was thinking, too, that you could incorporate some holographic elements in some of your concerts in that sense, so that because of the technology and, and then the upcoming technology, you might be able to take some of that footage that you do have and create that kind of feel. Well, I'm not so interested in holograms you know, they uh, they may be okay for a current artist, a living artist, but for a deceased artist, I I think it's it's really not 
such a bueno idea. Gotcha, gotcha. Just a suggestion while I was, while we were talking. When you started to do the deep dive into your dad's music, and you mentioned about learning things note for note in some cases, do, do you find that, and this is an interesting challenge, is that sometimes magic cre- is created as a whole, and when you start to dissect it note for note, it somehow loses that magic did that happen to you, or did you find it still works once you were able to go note for note, put it then all together, and you still were able to recreate it? Well, I view it slightly differently, whereas, so for example, if you're talking about an orchestra who's playing the work of Beethoven or Mozart or some other popular well-known composer, the the music is on the page and the music is written to be played a certain way and they they have their instructions and they go out and they they put their emotion into it and they do the best they can and and essentially you know any orchestra is a cover band and they're playing you know the music that is the hits right, right. so uh, when you when you take a song like what we were talking about we thought of Mr Green James that song as it is, the, the the sound, the production of it, the notes and all those things, I view that the same as the notes on a piece of paper that are the instructions for an orchestra to play. Because if I, I want that song to sound the way that it sounds when I listen to it, you know, from the record, I got to do my best to try to recreate the sounds of the record and then uh, you know, play the notes that are on the record. So to me, it's it is just how that song goes. You know, that's that's how I want that song to sound because I I think it, you know, like if if I change any notes to it, it's not improving it. You know what I mean? So right. Um, that's that's the way that I look at that. But but I know that my dad had a, a sort of principle in his music. And in his performances of his music, where he did not set out to try to recreate the sound of the record or play anything note for note like a record because he wanted it to be different every single time. You know, but because we are specifically saying, hey, we're playing Hot Rats, I want it to be evocative of the record and of the era. And so it's a specific choice there. But I do have a balance of some of the other improvisational elements still exist. Songs that are supposed to have improvisation in them still have in, improvisation within them. But the other ones that uh, have more specific structure, we are utilizing that and, and, and conforming to the structure. So that's kind of the, the way that it works within the music overall and not just hot rats. But, you know, we will approach everything like that. But generally speaking, there is a lot of improvisation in the show so that the magic element of something happening just at that time for just that audience, that's an important part of the uh, the show. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Dweezil Zappa. He's performing Hot Rats Live, plus other hot stuff, 1969 at Brooklyn Bowl, Las Vegas. This Thursday... February 20th at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to brooklynbowl.com forward slash lost-vegas. And for everything about Dweezil, go to dweezilzappa.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at dweezilzappa as well as on Instagram and 
Facebook. Edwizel, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Be my-